0: Hey, Christina. How are you? you?
1: Great, thank you. (laughs) you, What about yourself?
0: Uh, Good, good, thank you. Everything good. Um, Are you Thomas or Thomas?
1: Uh, uh, Either one is fine. Thomas is usually how I go. Oh,
0: Thomas. Okay. Okay. Are you from Germany?
1: (laughs) Uh, Very close, yes. Yes, I'm from Austria. But like uh, five minutes away from the border to Germany.
0: Oh, so close to Salzburg? Point. Oh, you
1: know the region, yes. <laughs> that's the biggest city close by. <laughs>
0: mm, that's an, I, I love it. Um, Yeah, I grew up in Germany, and uh, I was a few times in Salzburg. I, I love it, it's so beautiful.
1: Oh, thanks. <laughs> oh, so where did you grow up then in Germany?
0: In the ugliest place, Bochum, in Ruhrgebiet. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Well, it's not so ugly anymore, but back then, when I was a child, it was still relatively ugly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: Last time I forgot to try one experiment. Uh, Do uh, Bluetooth headphones usually work, or do they lower the audio quality?
0: Yeah, they work. Uh, It depends. Like some, if they are some noise canceling ones, are kind of sometimes you sound like people sound like they're in a tin box, but most, I think they figured that out. I think it improved a lot. So it should be, should be fine.
1: Shall we risk it? Or, uh, yeah.
0: yeah, you can try, we have a few minutes. <laughs>
1: okay, thank you so much then.
0: <laughs> yeah, sure. Of course, whatever you're more comfortable in is good. <laughs>
1: then I would try the headphones just for the extended duration. <laughs> but uh, otherwise it's also fine without headphones.
0: So have you been following the European news about the Ukraine and the tanks?
2: Just
1: a little bit. I uh, only saw like, the headlines. Ah, no, it's the headphones. Does this work? Or is the
0: yeah, it's, it's work? a little bit uh, lower. And...
1: Ah, then let's do the other one.
0: Okay. Yeah, but if you're way more, it still works. Sure. It's still fine. We can still understand. Sure,
1: you. perfect. <laughs> yeah, so many things happening in Europe.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But I'm so glad we work. We are in science. <laughs> I think always in the world is crazy, if you think about science work, it's, yeah. like it's the only sane place.
1: <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Really loved it. Like about like everyone actually trying to work together and like having kind of some shared things, even if sometimes disagreeing, it's different.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's at least we agree on like the principles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I I put up the link for the presentation and then in the chat. I added the paper and I'm adding the the lab website.
1: Oh, thank you so much.
0: I'm doing that now. And then I will start sharing on Twitter that we're about to start. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm I'm explaining because I don't wanna feel like that people feel like I don't care. <laughs> they are around it's uh, there are specific things you can really only do when you start the room oh Uh, so i i of course made poster and so i make posters beforehand but i feel like saying yeah now we're actually starting and everywhere and things like that is also important and that you can only really do when when it's actually starting (laughs) So that's good. Well, thank you so much for a try. Were you already on Clubhouse before? No,
1: just registered for this purpose.
0: Wow, <laughs> we'll That's so fun. Awesome.
1: <laughs> no, thanks for the invite. I think it's sounds very interesting this app.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, it started during COVID um, times, and it, I think it was the first audio-only um type of app, and then. Now, a few other companies started um, copying it. There's Twitter Spaces and I think LinkedIn and Facebook are trying something similar, but
1: yeah, it's
0: relaxing to not have a video. (laughs) Uh,
1: What's the best strategy of discovering exciting houses and rooms?
0: um so you can when you sign up um fine um you can you can determine what interests you so and based on that i think your hallway is put together and um so there are a few clubs that are really good so um if you like it depends on what you would like to um you know learn about if it's news or um specific news about specific topics uh, and then there are different clubs that are really good so another good science club is quantum photonics they have a lot of great physicists coming and um and there is the future brain club uh, that one is also i think really good they also have then also like this news update rooms that are really good so um i guess the following the right people it's uh then you get the right updates i guess but if you want recommendations i can just give you some um afterwards and then there used to be tech news around the world uh, but they moved just to twitter spaces so if you would (laughs) like to listen to that um You, it would be on Twitter, which is you know the same way. You just click on the room and then you can listen. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah. So, I I think it's really interesting way of kind of making a podcast. Like I see it that way. So, we then we record these rooms and then we also upload them then as a podcast on different. Mm -hmm platform so it's it's more interactive I think and more interesting than just having if people come up and ask sometimes it's hard for people to have like you know there's a scientist with a PhD and then some people are kind of not comfortable at asking questions but I think by now we have more and more people feeling comfortable enough and, and participating. I think that's been very interesting when people do that.
1: Yeah, also for me that now promises to be fun with the questions, <laughs> looking forward to them. I think it's yeah. really nice <laughs> to also like, see like also people asking questions from very different corners.
0: Exactly, I think that is the most interesting part, and what got me basically hooked as um is that and to be honest i since I'm doing this like club before it was very informal before I created the club like uh but um I learned so much <laughs> from science areas that you know usually you don't get to interact with, because you don't go to conferences out too much outside of your so yeah i think i learned a lot so (laughs) i think that's exciting yeah i think in a couple of minutes we will start um oh hamish is here hi hamish uh he presented last week his work uh which was really great so I'm always happy when people come. Please feel free to come to the stage. Mm-hmm. Um everyone. We will start in a couple of minutes. And um Hi Eli, how are you? Uh
3: doing okay. This looks really interesting. I, I unfortunately have to multitask uh due to the demands of my day, but uh um uh definitely gonna be uh y- y- listening keenly
0: nice yeah thank you and hi hamish how are you today hi deepak
2: hi how you going yeah good um i'm just i'm also multitasking hi, good, so hi. yeah <laughs> I'll, i'm looking forward to the talk and i'll just um, i'll just be listening in
0: yeah great That's wonderful having you here uh yeah, thanks everyone <laughs> and hamish is in summer so
2: yeah i'm i'm currently um just going for a walk um and it's um yeah it's going to be like 30 uh oh, I mean, celsius is 30 degrees here so it's pretty it's already pretty sunny um sorry, sorry to make you jealous but i uh, hope hope the weather's not too bad where you are
0: yeah it's it was raining and cold but it's fine <laughs> it's fine i hope you you are enjoying it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I will. Yeah, <laughs> thanks.
0: No. Um. So yeah, I think we can slowly start. I know people will still um be coming in, but um we can start with introductions and and then we'll go from there. So welcome everyone to Science Society, and of course a special welcome to Thomas here, and um. Uh, Let me give you a short introduction, so you get to know Thomas a little bit. Um, Thomas uh, did his uh, Master's uh, in Molecular Biology at the University of Vienna, uh, Austria, and then his PhD in Systems Biology at the University of Zürich in Switzerland, and um, he won um, different awards, uh, for uh, example, the P- for best PhD thesis of the Faculty of Science at the University of Zürich, and the most tweeted bio, um, pre-print, bio archive preprint, um, and, which is really cool, and um, he also won the K99 Pathway for Independence Award, which is very competitive here in the US and um he thinks that the most intriguing part of biology um holds the most promising avenues for research in human health and are still under explored so um i really agree with that and um mitigating human aging will um will solve so many problems uh we have in health so Uh, It's really an honor to have you here, Thomas. And um, before we start, we usually uh, ask a few interview questions, if that's okay with you. Oh,
1: absolutely. And thank you so much for the invite. And thank you everyone for uh, being here and joining us today.
0: Wonderful. So the first question is, how did you um, become interested in pursuing a life in science, basically. Was it something you always wanted to do since childhood or is it something else that kind of sparked your curiosity there? Thank you.
1: I think when I was very little, I wanted to become the first scientist who would discover living dinosaurs, but then that idea dropped off. And then when I got close to university, I wasn't sure what to study. And um, in Austria, there's this book that lists all of the different study programs. And one that was very appealing to me was a very science-focused uh, study program. And I thought if I go into that direction, I will never get bored later in life. And since then, I kind of got stuck with it.
0: <laughs> that is very cute, <laughs> the story with the first living dinosaur. I think that's for, for a lot of boys, especially really a dream. My. All the son he was a dinosaur fan too so. <laughs> <laughs> really cool. but
3: but I, I i presume that was before it was recognized that birds are dinosaurs <laughs>
1: that was before that yes <laughs>
0: well <laughs> but yeah i I'm glad you found um you know you got supported and following this path and how did um did you then um come into this specific research field of aging and and then also how this project uh, came about if you have like if you could give us a peek behind the curtain there thank you
1: yeah they're really like two main reasons the first one maybe the most important one is people uh many of uh My mentors that I met uh, during my postdoc were actually doing research related to aging or even collaborating on related themes. Um, And even though I didn't start my postdoc in aging, it kind of gave me a nice opportunities to learn more about aging and um, work with uh, wonderful colleagues in different laboratories. And the second one is kind of more science driven. So I'm really interested in the many things that we do not yet know about biology. And um, starting new research directions is something that occurs very rarely. Um, One thing that I did was to look at all of the publications about uh, biology that um, have been produced before and ask, where do people break into new directions? And presently, there's three domains of science that are particularly open to novelty. One is research on diet. The second one is about eyesight and the third one is about aging. So I thought this could be a good starting point.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I'm so glad because now we are here speaking with each other. Um, So i'm really glad you you did that very systematically <laughs> i applaud you for that that you checked. Uh that's that's really interesting um i would recommend that for uh, a lot of students actually it's a really good advice to look what actually also the fields that that now uh fund uh like groundbreaking research because i think there are fields that only fund very safe projects and then there are fields where they tend to fund more projects like this that are more interesting (laughs) so congrats and um yeah the the presentation is pinned on top of the room um please everyone access it while uh, thomas is um speaking and the stage is yours thank you
1: Thank you again, Katarina, and uh, also thanks for organizing the full series, which is this large, wonderful volunteer activity that you're doing. Thank you for doing that. So uh, thank you, everyone, also for being here today and being excited and curious about some of the research that we have been doing. In the next couple of, of around 30, 40-ish minutes, you will hear about some findings of ours about aging, and uh, how aging uh, relates to unbalanced gene expression. Um, On each slide, uh, basically I will attempt to convey one main message. So if you have some um, question, don't hesitate to interrupt and also ask during the talk, but we will also have a a discussion afterwards. Um, The presentation that you will hear is kind of divided into three parts. At first, you will hear and see the background, learn what gene expression is, how that relates to aging. In the second main part, um, you will discover some of our findings, some of the new things that we have observed, and uh, that uh, will probably, uh, hopefully, something that you will equally enjoy. And in the third, uh, last part, we will zoom out a little bit to the bigger picture and uh, make uh, apparent and visible some of the things about the biology of aging that we do not yet understand. Uh, And with that, we can uh, move to the uh, second slide in the presentation deck, which at the same time is the most important one. So if you're here today, you're probably interested in science, possibly also in aging, And you might wonder why we age, what one could do about aging, if there could be ways also of mitigating some of the effects. And you will uh, get um, some more insights during uh, the presentation and um, as you will hear about our own findings. But this slide really, I think, is the most important one. This is a slide from the United States National Institute on Aging. And this uh, webpage, compiles uh, many excellent guides about aging, things that we can do for healthier aging, for slowing down, also very practical things that we might face as we get older or as our dear ones get older, such as how to prevent falls. Falls are basically something that is really studied by scientists but has this tremendous effect actually uh, um, on our health as we get older. And it's really a really excellent collection uh, of advice um, that I would highly recommend you to check later. So let's move to the science. On the next slide, you will see two different faces. And I want to acknowledge both of them. Both of them arrived independent of us at the same findings or very similar findings that you will see later. The first one is um, Cesar Payan Gomez, and he has been working as a bioinformatician in the group of Jan Hoymakers. And on the publication that you see highlighted on the right, Restricted Diet Delays, Accelerated Aging and Genomic Stress in DNA Repair Deficient Mice, he actually also made the observation of how um, gene expression becomes unbalanced during aging. And the second person is um, Olga Ivanes Solé. Um, like ourselves, she basically found that this phenomenon that César has also seen is actually a very widespread phenomenon uh, that occurs in many different tissues and many different animals. Um, she even was faster than me in figuring that out and uh, also submitted to the very same journal but the reason why you're not listening to her and instead listening to me is that I happen to be a little bit older, so I actually had submitted it before her. Uh, But she also independently arrived at the very same findings, and I really want to acknowledge that and also recommend you to check uh, her preprint, which is presently on uh, BioArchive. So let's move... um, to our manuscript or publication, which we published in December. You can see a lot of authors, and I want to thank all of them. Um, So basically, a reason for having so many authors is that we actually inspected many different organ systems. And the main finding of our research publication is that aging is associated with a systemic length-associated transcriptome imbalance. So for everyone, especially those who I get to uh, show something that I've never seen before, I want to introduce you what gene expression is and what transcriptome is. Um, Basically, during gene expression, transcripts catalyzed production of gene-specific proteins. So next slide, you basically see these three uh, entities, genes, give rise to transcripts, and they give rise to proteins. So in each cell of your body, there are roughly 20,000 protein coding genes. And these genes uh, uh, template um, gene-specific transcript molecules that then contain that information of the gene and catalyze the formation of gene-specific proteins. And different genes, thus ultimately different proteins in your body, They fulfill different uh, purposes and um, thus are not always equally active at the same time. Um, This uh, is particularly prominent in some um, contexts. So if you go to the next slide, you will see these beautiful images um, of green and uh, magenta on top of a black background. So what is it what you're looking at here? So these are basically fruit flies, specifically embryos of fruit flies. Uh, The uh, magenta marks um, DNA acids. And green, basically, this marks transcript molecules. And on each image, you see um, the transcripts of another gene being colored. And by looking at these green uh, signals, you're basically looking at these gene-specific transcript molecules. And without going into much detail, you can see that um, the green takes different patterns on different images. So sometimes it's in stripes. Sometimes it's kind of in dots. Sometimes these dots are evenly distributed. Sometimes they're just like all together. You see that there's a lot of different things happening. And that's because different genes are active to different extents in different parts of uh, animal bodies. And this is actually one thing that actually got me also very excited about studying um, transcripts as a way to understand how genes become active a long time (laughs) ago. And I hope you equally enjoy that. So you can see that there can be strong differences um, in the activity of transcripts. But when we now move to the next slide, you will see a summary of something that not many people talk about. And that relates now to the biology of aging. Specifically, many research groups have reported that hundreds or even thousands of genes change changed activity during aging. This means that they would find different transcripts to change during aging. You're here looking at three different cycles that basically indicate three different studies, and the number in- indicates the overlap between those studies, and and the number of uh, genes that are found only by one study. And you can see that in published literature, studies done by very, very reputable labs rarely overlap, and they actually find different transcripts and different genes to change with aging. When we did our own pilot study, also under very controlled conditions, we would again see other genes to change during aging. Ultimately, there's only a single gene that is consistently changing in its transcripts across all different studies. And that could mean a few things. Um, regretfully, there is, might be a tendency to think that Everyone else besides oneself makes things wrong. And obviously, each lab thinks that everyone thinks that they are the ones that are doing things right, and everyone else makes things wrong. But there could also be an other reason. Maybe there's actually something much more fundamental to learn about the nature about aging, of aging. And the first hint towards this is presented on the next slide. When we repeated our own pilot study, we also found other transcripts to change. So this means that when we do the same experiment, again, under the same conditions, with the same, and with the same people, um, with animals living at the same facility, and everything as identical as possible, we get different results. And that's very uncomfortable (laughs) Um, because that could raise a lot of questions. What's happening here? Why do different studies at the same laboratory find quite different genes to change during aging? Maybe the things that we observe during aging are not as general as we want them to be. Another thing, explanation could be that we're really missing out on, the, on identifying the nature of the changes that are happening during aging. And a further hint for that came from a very enjoyable review that has been published around like four years ago from Alessandro Ocelarino and uh, Sandro Ori, which basically really asked the question, what have we learned on aging from omics studies? So omics, these are basically a set of experimental approaches that don't measure a single gene, but actually measure all the 20,000 genes, protein-coding genes at the same time in one experiment. And they realize that in aging, many genes change the activity, so have different transcripts changing. But for each gene, the changes of the transcripts have a very small magnitude. So you also see here a summary graph of the results on, human pre- on the cortex. On the x-axis, you see the magnitude of change. So if it is a log 2 of 1, it means that the number of transcripts is a double, so it gets reduced to half. And on the y-axis, you have a summary of all of the uh, genes that are found to change the transcripts with aging. And you can see that um, 95% of the transcripts that change with aging change less than one fold. So these are very small changes. Um, You will maybe recall the images that you've seen before on the fruit flies. So these are basically on several orders of magnitude higher. In contrast, changes that are less than one fold basically changes that the typical laboratory cannot reliably measure. So it's basically where we are in the domain of measurement noise. At the same time, this study they would find that many genes change. So let's summarize what we have till now. We know that many genes change in aging, but all genes that change in aging only do so to a very, very small extent. And you've also already seen that this is very different from kind of typical ways in which we think about regulation of genes, where you can even get this beautiful. visible patterns that you can even detect by the eye. Most changes that happen during aging are too small to be reliably detected by themselves. <clears throat> so we took a step back and tried to figure out what might be characterizing the changes that happen during aging. And on the next slide, you will see a summary of our intellectual approach. So we basically. Considered mice throughout the entire lifespan, from young mice four months younger, old mice to twenty four months old mice. And our collaborators, they um, dissected um, um, different organs, basically trying to get a very broad overview about all different um, things that are happening in the mouse. In parallel, I went to many databases to sample as much information about genes and their regulation as possible. So genes can be, for instance, regulated by um, specific uh, enzymes that basically bind um, regulatory regions close to the gene and then basically activate them or make them less active. And genes can also be regulated by Um, sequences that affect how stable individual transcript molecules are, and genes can possibly also be regulated by other things. So overall, I tried to get as many possible explanations as possible, over 2,000 alternative uh, properties or features of genes that could affect the regulation. And then we combined the experimental data with this potential for regulation. And we did this technically through something called gradient boosting regression, which uh, tries to pair those things in a very stable manner and allows us also then to ask what are the features or properties that uh, contribute um, to um, this comparison. And we found that the most informative features would all relate to lengths specifically how long the gene is, how long the transcript is, how long the protein is. All of those things actually also correlated. So we found that basically length alone would account for nearly everything that was um, reproducibly measurable. On the next slide, you will see a representative example. Uh, You see some cloud, and I will now walk you through the elements of the graph. On the x-axis, you have the log transcript lengths. So transcripts basically are polymers that um, consist of nucleic acids. And basically, um, you see, here you have the number of nucleic a- acids that are in these polymers. And you see on logarithmic scale that it spans several orders of magnitude. On the Weixes, you have the relative fault change of old animals over young ones. So things that are above zero, these are transcripts that relative fold increase with aging and those below zero show relative fold decrease. Looking at the visual you also see that things go from top left to bottom right which means that there is this strong negative correlation. The cloud is a density map that basically shows where uh, all of the transcripts lie so basically on the outer co- um, rim of this cloud it's contains 90% of all transcripts. And you also see some dots. These dots are the dots that would usually be detected by conventional approaches of measuring changes in transcripts. And you can see again that these changes are small. Um, uh, But what you also see is that although by themselves changes of the other transcripts are not reliably measurable, even in, in the cloud, there is something going from top left to the bottom right, meaning that it contains information. So basically, we have found that there is this um, effect that effect seems to affect most or all genes and leads to negative correlation with transcript lengths and age-dependent change of um, transcripts. We then um, asked whether this observation is specific to our data set. if it might be something more general and on the next slide you will see a summary so basically we considered all of the popular studies that exist about changes of gene activity in aging and so we looked at many studies of mice many studies of red humans um, killifish um, everything we kind of could find (laughs) and we then asked in the published data and in our own data, how often are these correlations? And you see here on the very left, the share of tissues in human studies, which are the ones in gray or in model organism studies, so this is everything except humans, that have negative correlation. And over 60% of all tissues in existing and data have a negative correlation. Uh, On the very right, you see a positive correlation. So we also find a few tissues which actually have a positive correlation uh, in humans and in model organisms, which again is very interesting. And we believe that this negative and positive correlation are basically vis-a-vis manifestations of the same phenomenon. Only very few tissues do not have uh, any correlation. So this shows that the thing that we have observed, this negative correlation between transcript length and age-dependent change seems to be a very general property of aging. But there's even more to it. You might be wondering, um, so what? what happens now that transcripts change? Could there be anything that, any way that this could contribute to aging even further? And we actually believe so, and we have some strong support for this. Specifically, many people have already studied aging, and many things are known about aging. So we know about hundreds of genes that uh, either extend or shorten the lifespan of aging, uh, of animals. This still doesn't mean that we um, can fully (laughs) understand aging, but it means that many things can contribute to the manifestations of aging. And we find that the shortest genes only rarely have genes um, that extend lifespan, whereas the longest uh, transcripts, um, they they belong to genes that would actually extend the lifespan. So we actually have this systemic um, effect um, on um, gene activity according to length, which basically unbalances the gene expression of cells uh, such that uh, genes that would extend the lifespan actually become less active as we age. For the, um, those of you who maybe have already studied some literature about aging or biology in general, I also have um, some more information on the next slide, where you see um, this red and these uh, blue um, circles. And you see individual scientific terms in red and in blue. And the red ones, these are terms that relate to cellular processes that are enriched amongst the shortest transcripts and depleted amongst the longest. And the blue ones are uh, cellular processes that are enriched amongst the longest transcripts and depleted from the shortest. And you see many things um, that you might have encountered as apologies, such as chromatin or telomere organization, mitochondrial function, proteostasis, things that are inflammatory immune responses, many things that actually had been independently linked to aging before us. You also see that the longest genes uh, are enriched for neural activities which might uh, help to explain some age-dependent neurological phenotypes. So overall, we see that there's a strong kind of organization of the genome, according to length, that overlaps with things that people have already been studying in the context of aging. And you've also seen that in most, but not all tissues, um, certain, uh, the longest ones become less active as we age. So what can we do about it? In the next slide, uh, you see that it's possible to counter this imbalance that we've observed. On the left, you see a summary of some interventions that we have also included in our manuscript. So basically, there are interventions that are known to extend in animals the lifespan. You might have encountered some familiar ones such as caloric restriction, which basically means having access to less calories, or partial reprogramming, which where basically cells are put into a state that is kind of more embryonic in a way, or partially in that direction. But then on the very right hand, and that's not published yet, we actually have also been working on additional interventions, and we actually have an unpublished drug that. Um, counters this imbalance to an even stronger extent than any of the known anti-aging interventions that had already been described prior our work. So this means two things. First is that the observation that we made um, really relates to this kind of biological process that we colloquially refer to as aging. And the second one, that it is actually reversible and we have some uh, ways of developing interventions. With this, we are already at the intermediate summary. The main part about the biology of aging. Uh, you have seen that observed changes in transcripts in aging are primarily measurement noise, i hinted at Also, that the changes that are not due to measurement noise are fully uh, exp- or nearly fully explained by transcript lengths alone, and the length-dependent imbalance disproportionately affects genes that affect lifespan, which leads us to this overall theme of aging being possibly due to unbalanced gene expression that stems from differences in the length of transcripts. With that, we would actually like to know where this imbalance really comes from. (laughs) And we're not the only ones that are interested in the question. So I want to uh, share with you one beautiful study from uh, la- published last week uh, in uh, Nature Genetics that also again saw this length-dependent uh, change of transcripts with aging. And they figured out that if there is damage to the DNA, uh, basically the machinery that um, creates these transcript molecules becomes kind of arrested and it kind of creates almost like a traffic jam, where then additional machineries that would usually read along the gene can no longer pass by, leading to long transcripts becoming less active. And and I personally believe that this is, for us humans, a large part of the uh, explanation, and at least points very well into what's underlying this observation that we have. But you've also already seen that this can't be the full explanation. For instance, you've already seen that in some tissues, the longest transcripts actually show a fold increase rather than a fold decrease. And we also have some additional insights that also already show why that can't be the full explanation. Um, and I will share with you some of these insights and And I hope that in the next five minutes, you will bear with me as we make a small detour. And I promise you, we'll come back to aging later. Basically, research into human genes follows very strong and identifiable patterns. So in this next slide, you basically see on the x-axis the observed a number of publications for each human protein coding gene in MEDLINE. So for some genes, there are thousands of publications. For others, there's only a handful. And in the Y axis is the output of a machine learning model that I created, that basically is able to predict how many publications there are on each human protein coding gene. And without jumping into the details, you see that most things are along the diagonal. This means that it is possible to quantitatively understand and forecast research on human protein coding genes. And similar as we, you've seen before, for our study on aging, we can also tease these uh, models apart to actually understand where this pattern comes from. And I invite you to look at some of my earlier publications on the topic, where you see four highlighted on the right. So this could now be taken to different directions. One is you could feel tempted to do what others will also very soon do and kind of try to become very, very mainstream in your uh, scientific research. But I think the far more exciting question is actually to ask what are the things that are important but lie outside uh, of the general course of biomedical research? And next slide, you see three examples this now from a recent study from us that we also published in December, that tried to understand how often are people studying a scientist studying genes that are known to be important for different aspects of disease. <clears throat> so you have three examples. The first one is glioblastoma. And I selected this example because it's almost 20 years ago since like some large initiative, the Cancer Genome Atlas, identified through unbiased data genes. That very strongly contribute to glioblastoma. 27% of those genes have never been mentioned in the title or abstract of any publication on glioblastoma. In the middle, you see something related to aging, Alzheimer's disease. Specifically, there has recently been a large $250 million initiative of the National Institute of Health of the United States. Um, towards Alzheimer's. This, uh, this initiative, they identified the most promising therapeutic targets for Alzheimer's disease, which is a devastating disease. And although many people study Alzheimer's, 44% of the genes that are the most promising therapeutic targets, according to the best available data, have never been studied, appeared in the title of any single, uh, or title abstract of any single publication on Alzheimer's. And when we move to SARS-CoV-2, again there's much research happening on SARS-CoV-2, but if we ask which of the human proteins that interact with SARS-CoV-2 virus actually have been studied in the SARS-CoV-2 literature, 60% have never appeared in the title abstract of any publication on SARS-CoV-2, and I could go on and on, and show that for many different types of diseases. So basically, that is historically acquired patterns of scholarship that still basically are propagated and lead to many genes not being studied. Imagine that you want to understand what a plane is, but you're only given half of the parts. It would be very difficult for you to understand what a plane is, even more to control it or to flight to some other um, destination. And that's probably an oversimplification because we biologists are still trying to figure out the principles behind biological matters, whereas we would be familiar with engineering principles behind a plane. And the same thing also happens with aging. That's what you now see on the next slide. And that's the last and second most important slide. And it contains a lot of information, and, and we'll walk you through it. <clears throat> Basically, that's actually the other way of how we ended up at looking at or finding this length association. We identified roughly 100 genes for which there's a very strong support that they relate to aging. And then we went to the literature and asked how many of these genes actually have been studied in the context of aging. And um, 64% of those genes, we know what they're doing in aging. And it's actually very reassuring that these genes that seem important, we're studying many of them. But then there are these other genes that have not been characterized well in aging. Although there would be this large support that those genes associate with aging if we look at unbiased data sets. And... We can also break this down into individual categories, and the specifics are not too important. But basically, the higher up in the list, the easier it will be for a design experiments. And we can, in the middle, you see that we can get gain additional information about those genes, like in which organs would it be easy to studying them. And we can create in blue different scores that tell us how easy it would be to approach these genes with different investigative approaches. We can also look at those genes in the general scientific literature and ask if those genes had been studied elsewhere. So one of the messages of this slide is that there are many more things that should be studied in aging, but no single scientist has ever studied what these genes are doing in aging. Although there's a very strong, overwhelming support that they are doing something with aging, and uh, Katharina in the beginning mentioned this K99 award, and um, which will allow me to uh, this year also like to start a laboratory that will actually focus on systematically exploring all of these different genes that no one studies, although they seem to contribute to aging. And now let's jump to the very right hand side, which is like concluding the full presentation, this is the proof of visibility. Uh, I cannot yet share with you the specific identity of this gene that I call here gene E, but uh, we realized in the literature that gene E is required for the transcription of long genes. So we noticed that this gene also becomes less active in aging. And this led us to first look at tra- um, gene and transcript length. And I think it's actually this gene which is the initial uh, trigger for this length association in mice and also in some tissues in humans. And with that, I just want to thank you uh, all again for your attention and also share with you a little bit the gift of this gene E. Take a second, look at the screen. Uh, Realize that there is something like gene E uh, first time, I re- I couldn't believe it. Uh, I started to shake It's kind of seeing all of many images flashing front of my head, almost like picture yourself taking, seeing all of these memories, like of young, old people seeing all of the things that are happening around you, things that ha- happen in each of your cells. And... Picture yourself feeling completely overwhelmed that you have possibly seen what drives all the deaths and all of the change around you. And just shaking. And I was kind of speechless. I couldn't really move much from the chair, even started to cry, kind of completely overtaken by realizing that by looking at this E, you might be among the first people to realize what's causing so much change in the life around you and many generations before you. And with that, I want also to extend uh, the gratitude for you being here and uh, joining uh, this presentation. I also want to uh, um, thank you in, in the name of my collaborators and all of the mentors. Um, Scott Budinger, he has been in starting the study on mice and created initial data set. Alexander Sasha, Mischerin, um, he did many of the initial experiments. Rome Grant helped with uh, bioinformatics. Uh, Luis Amaral is also a fantastic mentor also on, the, uh, on research about research. Uh, Rick Morimoto, been a mentor and also a, a course on um, aging, uh, also very great career advice as uh, Bess McNally, who's another member of my mentoring committee in the K99, and Jacob uh, Snyder, who is like an informal mentor, but has also been very instrumental in us uh, navigating the path towards this publication. And I also want to thank funding, which includes the Northwestern Data Science Initiative, national science foundation science policy grant and a k99 i posted tenure track award of the national institute on aging and finally on the last slide you see some conversation pieces i'm looking forward to the discussion thank you so much
0: yeah thank you so much Thomas this is a really a brilliant work and um i really appreciate you sharing this with us and coming here because i really wanted people to appreciate your way of approaching things (laughs) in general. Uh, I think we have too little of that looking systematic to take a step back um, first and to take the time to take a step back and look at it uh, from a larger perspective, systematic way. Wait, how are we doing things? Why are we not making the progress we wanted to make? And and then analyze large sets of data, and then start from there. I don't think many people do this, and I wish more people in mental health research, hopefully people are listening, please take (laughs) Thomas' approach, uh, because that way we, we will solve so many things in a much effective way and And we save money, right? Um, I, so I was very impressed with, with, you know, your work in general and how you're approaching. And then when I interviewed you and you said you approached the same, already looking for what, you know, in what field you want to go in. So I guess it's, it's something at some point you learned as a person to analyze everything in life that way and then uh, you use that for your research so it's uh, it's really elegant and 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 very important so everyone look through thomas if you're deciding in what career to choose what field to choose look at his publications where he goes to light amount of data and then go from there (laughs) and write your grants based on what is not published yet so and what would be very effective to do so you did just that was a huge service i think for uh for the field and for humans so uh, thank you for doing that
1: thank you for the enthusiasm and again i should also say some of the most pleasant conversations i had and a strong level of support is actually also from funding agencies. I think like people that are more leaning towards science policy, uh, they are particularly, I think, also open and appreciative of some of this approach that tries to add something where no one adds uh, more knowledge.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, I want to open it up for questions. So uh, please, go ahead. (laughs) Thank you.
2: Hi. Yeah, thanks. Um, Can you hear me all right? Yep. Yes, thanks so much. Um, yeah, thanks for your great talk. I was actually going to say a very similar thing to Katarina. It's it's very clear that you, you have gone about it systematically, and you know now, now you've found Gene E, and it's very exciting. So I I look forward to your publications to see what Gene E does. Mm-hmm. Um, so good luck with that. Um, I might have to set up a Google Scholar alert <laughs> to make sure I follow. Thank you. you. But, um, before you got to Gene E, I was going to ask you if you think that. It's um, if there's some transcriptional regulator that's, you know, causing um, the changes in just the lengthy genes um, expression. And so I guess then the question is, well, what's controlling gene E? Because it sounds like you said that gene E expression goes down in ageing. And I guess um, just maybe you don't know that yet. But I mean, that was obviously interesting. But and it tied into that because I was just thinking as you were talking, I'm not an expert on ageing, but. I understand that you know mammals um, mammalian ages are kind of somehow set or adapted and it might be to do with like um, child rearing and evolution so humans live for a certain age um elephants and all that um so do you think that um yeah like say when gene e starts to decline it could be the set point of when you know humans should start to um die (laughs) i'd love to hear your thoughts on that um, I'm not so much
1: sure about like if it's a static timer. Um, I think many things relate to environmental exposures, and that there are things that integrate over the passage of time and lifespan. Uh, yep. Sorry. Yep. Hey. Sorry. Yep. Oh, sorry. Ah, no, I <laughs> think that. <laughs> ah, no, it was uh, yeah. So, so we know that uh, in terms of gene regulation. Gene E also is one of the most distinctively regulated genes that exist in humans um, that actually has been shown in even you know, like a separate branch of scientific literature. So it has a very specific vein in which it is regulated. It's very different from uh, typical genes. So I think that this probably relates to the regulation of gene E during aging. Um then there's the evolutionary aspect um and um that you, they were not yet sure what to think about so like you've seen like on the genes that are short and i only gave a very brief teaser on that these tend to be genes that are involved in fighting uh pathogens like inflammatory genes and short genes um because it takes time to kind of transcriber gene to transcripts they can be actually produce proteins within a couple of uh, minutes whereas long ones it would take several hours to produce something which might be too slow for the response to pathogens so i think it could be that there's actually a trade off at least for short genes that several of them are more responsive genes that help short term survival but might uh, do so at the expense of long-term survival.
2: Right, yeah, thanks. That's really interesting. Yeah, all right, well, um, thanks for your talk and look forward to seeing your research. (laughs) Thank you. So um, this
3: hopefully will be an easy question. Uh, there was the slide that uh, you know showed that most genes uh, had a negative correlation, uh, some had a positive correlation and then there were the no, uh, the smallest category was uh, uh, tissues with no uh, correlation. I'm wondering uh, the tissues with no correlation, are those perhaps, do those perhaps tend to be tissues that, that uh, show less signs of aging?
1: Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, I can say that some of those that show the signs of aging, the earliest are also those that have the strong negative correlation. So those in the middle, I I will have a closer look at them again. Actually, it's a good idea. It could be like that there's like some multimodal thing where like is extreme or middle kind of behaves different from the rest. But overall, they don't stand out for aging faster. Look, look forward to, to <laughs> yes.
3: any any findings. Yes,
1: thank no, it's an excellent. Thank you so much for it. It would be really interesting actually to see how they actually change physiologically these uh, ones. We didn't look at them too too much regretfully yet, but there could be an interesting, very interesting story there. And also like to see maybe these are. Uh, a tissues that respond less to environmental stress and other changes of gene expression. That will, yeah, I must definitely have a closer look at them again. Thanks so much for suggesting that excellent point. Uh,
0: Dr. Shah, do you have a question on Deepak?
4: Yes, thank you so much, Thomas, for your wonderful talk. And my question, uh, as a part of the slides, I, I noticed you put the FGF21 gene, and I was just wondering about the, your observation about this gene, specifically because we know about the important role of that, especially in relation with the um, insulin kind of, for example, IGF and all of those insulin-related component. Yeah. Also, in a case of the cytokines, I was wondering about your observation and how it might be used for the future, for example, gene therapy. Do you see any possibility or not? Thank mm-hmm.
1: you. Yes. Um, so it, so ba- basically, one interesting thing about this factor is that it's kind of secreted and could possibly circulate. So I think that opens the very interesting question of kind of which effects happen close by to the site, so FGF21 uh, would be produced uh, versus somewhere else. So I think from that potential, it is very interesting. It also is in our, when we went back to old data sets, we found it actually also to have actually the most pronounced effect amongst the known anti-aging interventions, which could indicate that these are the things that happen below it are the more important ones which could tie to as indicated maybe something with igf but it could also mean that maybe it has a better way of spreading to many different locations or kind of affecting things kind of in at more sites which would be very interesting um there are also some um um some human mutations that also affect uh, FGF signaling, in which, and these seem to be mutations that associate with um, exceptionally long-lived uh, humans. So it could actually also be something that might be physiologically really relevant to humans. But we are, we don't, I don't know yet exactly how it directly links to the um, observation that we made here on on lengths. And whether it's like a more immediate or less immediate effect. But it, it definitely seems very promising as a general, also therapeutic direction.
4: <laughs> and yeah, so because uh, we just talked about the imbalance in expiration, also this gene can be related to imbalances in the metabolism. So that's why <laughs> yeah. I just thought that I asked you about it. So thank you so much. I'm passing the mic to the next person. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm here.
5: Go ahead. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, everybody. And uh, thank you, Thomas, for the excellent presentation and uh, the wonderful work that you have done. Congrats. Uh, and by the way, I was excited to hear that you studied in the University of Zurich. Mm-hmm. We might have shared the table in the Mensa or in the library oh. <laughs> because I was studying in ETH Zurich. <laughs> and still, it seems we graduated at, almost at the same time uh so yeah i was uh, the, uh, i was thinking of uh, you know the first thing which came popped into my mind when you were talking about uh, the length of the transcripts was that uh, the, the phenomenon of alternative splicing mm-hmm. and as you know there uh, well every human gene has a couple of in in average uh, i don't know three or four uh, alternative uh, uh, isoforms and it, some isoforms can have significant differences in length and I was wondering uh, uh, what, what your level of analysis was. Did you, I mean, calculate the average length of trans- all transcripts of a gene or actually every dot on your scatter dot plot is a single isoform, not, mm. not a gene. So you, you did the, the analysis at isoform level, not at gene level. Um,
1: we did it on a per gene level mostly because the initial experimental data we thought would not provide sufficient information for per transcript re- resolution, particularly like when it's um, more experimental data to reliably distinguish different transcript isoforms. Um, we think that the tr- it relates could relate to tr- I no from the structural properties, and as skipped over that, um, we also considered properties of um, um, the number of different. Sp- Uh, transcript variants, number of exons. And so we considered those potential things that could contribute to our regression model, but we did not find these things as informative. But um, now going back to splicing, um, there also has recently been, I think, um, a a preprint, I think it's from um, Vadim Gadishev's lab that showed that um, in humans, in the same data set that we actually investigated, um, there is actually changes in splicing that are happening during aging. And they concluded that this, that one of the things that breaks in aging or changes in aging is actually the splicing. Um, one thing that is, um, I think, very interesting is um, so there's this physiological thing that has often been put in the proximity of um, aging, which is um, heat shock response. So basically, if you administrate heat, then some proteins will kind of unfold, similar to like egg white, kind of getting white if you it cooks it. Um, and this heat, and there are certain things, gene proteins that should kind of counteract this from happening. So like that maybe makes these proteins not stick together and basically one of the things that's happening in heat shock in human cells and that has been published last uh year i think by kugusi al. in molecular cell is that the machinery that um that transcribes genes to produce transcript molecules runs faster and because that machinery runs faster um so, there um, certain parts of introns uh, become it cannot be covered in time by other proteins, and because these other proteins can then not cover these parts of the introns, what's happening is that the transcripts that are being produced because the, transcri- the machinery runs faster they um, expose certain stop signals that are in these introns. And um, that, in a way, is different splicing, too. But it also is um, this alternative polyalignation poly- being this kind of signal that says when to stop transcripts. So what's actually happening is that there, because the machinery runs too fast, you have a certain type of distinct splicing that's then uh, leads to transcripts being less stable. Um, and this also leads to a length associated phenotype. Um, so I think it is it can be related to splicing, but I don't think that actually splicing is the only thing. But yes, absolutely. So I think in, there is something with splicing and it probably also relates to why splicing might differ in aging and that this is it could be inherently tied to producing transcripts that are less stable.
0: Yeah, follow up on that, <clears throat> not related to splicing, we had last week um, or over the last 10 days uh, two um, speakers that talked about the 3D structure basically of the DNA and uh, one was um, Dr. Bazou, he is at Durham University. And he basically made a, managed to make a predictive model of the genetic code and how the 3D structure will be, how the folding most likely will be of that gene. And then the other was um, Dr. Ma- Marie uh, Nigambor, she's uh, in Barcelona. And she did this um, MIOS imaging uh, to um, see, like to visualize gene folding at the nucleosome resolution. And I was thinking, is there maybe, is it just more likely for a longer gene to over time that the 3D structure is just more affected than uh, in a a shorter gene? Because just, you know, we have G4s, (coughs) Ims and you know I motifs and so on and is it just statistically more likely for these to happen in aging and longer genes maybe
1: oh yeah yeah Uh, so we haven't looked at it by ourselves but uh, from colleagues that basically uh, study um um basically the I don't want to spoil too much of their work because I think it's not published, but there is reason to believe that uh, that long genes are at different locations within the 3D structure um, of the DNA. And some of these things also change during aging. Um, we don't know if that just happens to be a coincidence or if it relates to the same phenomenon that we observe. It might just be like um, another... Side of the same observation, or if it is something different, but definitely the long genes seem different in the 3D localization. And I don't want to spoil too much because I think it's not because that's from a colleague. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. exciting! Maybe he can come when once he
0: published.
1: <laughs> not not from our lab, but like someone else outside. No collaboration. Yeah,
0: yeah, maybe we can invite him yes. when publish. published. Yeah, that would be great. I'm looking forward to that work um, then. That's really exciting. And to your work that's not published yet and you mentioned. So it's really exciting. I know that Deepak, um, you were waiting patiently. Do you have a question still? Oh, maybe he <laughs> he got to, is away from the phone right now. Um, let me check in the chat. Um, so we've been going over an hour already. So I wanted to check with you how many questions are still okay to ask, uh, because you must be very busy also. So <laughs>
1: how many questions do we have left? <laughs> um,
0: I think um, probably one or two. Oh, but that's, that's fine.
1: That's one or two is fine.
0: Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, and then another thing. Um, that I wanted to ask about it's so interesting you know the length that the length is so important so we have the 3d structure the the splicing would maybe you know another thing that contributes a lot to these structural changes is pH levels mm. and uh, magnesium levels and so on is that something that you observe in like aging cells that these type of iron distribution and also <laughs> ph level changes happen more frequently oh
1: that, that's an excellent question again. Yeah, so um you've seen me you heard me talking about the transcriptome quite a bit today but we were also wondering what is actually behind the changes that happen to proteins svh and quite a bit of that can be explained by the changes that we observe in the transcripts. But there are even more things that contribute to the changes in proteins during aging. And one of the things that we have seen to be very informative on this is actually pH. So basically individual proteins, they basically co- uh, cons- of these different amino acids of which some like a more positive or negative charge. And depending on this charge, they will have a different isoelectric point. And we see that according to the isoelectric, this is, is actually one of the things that strongly informs on age-dependent changes in proteins that are not, and it informs on the changes that are not explained by transcripts. So we, are, we have actually been encountering that uh, against one more unbiased investigation. But uh, for transcripts, we don't ha- presently don't have strong support to link it to pH, but for proteins, we definitely have some implications.
0: Yeah, I was interested for a while in IMOTs and G4 related to synaptic plasticity in neurons, but I never got actually funding for this. I sent out a few terms, uh, grant, a grant. But, um, but yeah, and because the paper came out that showed in live cells that in I motifs like pH levels and magnesium levels and so on could you know increase the occurrence quite significantly so that's why I was thinking of that paper and then one more question was. Just before
3: before um, you go I... on, I just wanted to interject that uh, something like 40% of the U.S. population is uh, magnesium insufficient, right? So so there are two questions. Uh, what uh, uh, disease burden or m- morbidity burden uh, does that contribute to? But at the same time, uh, are your controls really appropriate? Well, I
1: think uh, to they... Connection just dropped. Do you hear me?
0: Yeah, I can hear you. Uh, I think Eli said, but I couldn't fully understand. So you mean how pH levels then in real life actually would affect aging? Oh, I,
3: I well, was, I was referring more to uh, um, uh, magnesium.
1: Hmm. I already wrote it down. It's a very interesting thing to test. Um, we haven't looked at it but it will be interesting to actually ask this.
0: Yeah, I can send you the paper that I'm referring to. I would have to look it up. I don't know it because it's years ago. Um, um, And then the other question that I had is, are these long genes uh, more cons... Like, is there a higher percentage of being highly conserved? Are these genes that are like newer, like mammal? Mm like more mammals or maybe even, you know, primate-related genes? Mm
1: -hmm. Um, So these are genes that are generally more specific to um, vertebrates. So like the um, oldest genes, they also tend to be relatively short genes. Um, So many kind of housekeeping kind of functions or general functions of what cells do tend to be short. And um, when we then move towards longer gene lengths. It's genes also that change a lot during development or relate to tissue specific functions. So these are, these are newer genes. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, yeah, that's interesting. And then is there evidence, um, um, I know that um, beginning of last year, Dr. Detlef Weigel and colleagues, they showed that in plants, uh, highly some highly conserved very important genes are very um protected even uh when there is replication of the cell going on um, that they are specific you know that basically mutation um, is not uh by chance that the you have regions that are highly protected so are these since it's neogenes and non-vertebrate you have some that really basically very easily rejuvenate uh, invertebrates so are these genes maybe less protected because they are you know not directly survival but like aging is a luxury type of genes?
1: um so one could twist that either way. you know the answer so one is um this one thing it is that uh, by being long, there's, like, more chance that something bad happens. Like, there's, like, a higher chance that, when these mutations happen. Um, so, like, long genes, in a way, are kind of predisposed to, for the chance of something bad happening. Um, at the same time, long genes have fewer kind of mutations than would be expected by their length, which indicates at the same time there's, like, some protective thing going on that allows these genes to be long and still uh, be okay or do something. Um, There are kind of these seemingly opposite ways of looking at it which are true at the same time. Um, One thing that we found is that the genes that are very long um, at the same time are genes that would actually have kind of a good effect for survival or lifespan. Um, which begs for the question of um, why they are long and how this relates to aging and evolution, um, and we don't have a strong proof for that. But I think there's like one hypothesis that I really like. Um, so, like the regulation of genes in um, yeast and in other in, in, in animals, like everything is kind of more complex than bacteria is awfully complicated, um, as bacteria seem to be doing just fine for most purposes. And one idea, or hypothesis, um, I think it was published as a kind of more perspective in cell, like around 10 years ago, is this frustrated gene hypothesis. And the idea is that gene regulation is not so much there to regulate genes, but to make it really difficult to uh, control genes and so that things should be there so to barely survive and the idea is that um, if so that is parasitic nucleic acids like basically you could think of them as certain types of viruses or so that basically try like to propagate in the dna but uh for organisms not nice if they're doing it so um, the idea is that if the gene expression machinery barely functional, if those parasitic nucleic acids would become active, the whole gene expression machinery will basically break and basically that could mean that then the organisms die, which on the population level could be a way of restricting the spread of parasitic nucleic acids. And the way I'm thinking about kind of survival genes being long, or long genes extending lifespan uh, could be along this line. So I think that basically having these genes as long, there could be, um, a, if there's like unspecific types of damages to the gene expression machinery or these parasitic nucleic acids, um, that then there would be a reduced survival of the individual, which however, on the population level might actually increase survivals. It could be that we might want to shorten lifespan of individuals to kind of prevent the spread of parasitic nucleic acids. But the last part is just an extrapolation from my side. But it's a very good puzzle of why these genes are wrong.
0: <laughs> Interesting. It's really fascinating. So thank you so much uh, for this really amazing discussion and sharing your work with us. And we wish you all the rest, all best for the future, although I don't think you need any of our wishes. But um, yeah, and we are very curious to continue to follow your work. So uh, thank you so much, Thomas. And uh, it was a really a pleasure. No, thank you. And
1: to thank you, everyone. Thank you. Bye.
0: Okay. And thanks everyone for coming, asking questions. It's so much more interesting to have a discussion with uh you know with uh, more people with different ways of thinking so thank you for that and um yeah i hope i hear you all back soon again thank you bye. Okay. <laughs> i'll close the room now in three two one bye everyone thank you